Alex, Dave, Working Man's Pod. We're back with you again. We're happy to be here. Happy you're joining us. I'm just going to start off on this note before we even go any further. Dave Lemieux, if you're listening to this, we reached out to you on Twitter. We'd love to have you on the show next month. And maybe, you know, hey, Dave, Dave, my my Dave, my co-host Dave, um, maybe maybe Mr. Lemieux is um, is checking this out, seeing are these guys professional? What are they thinking? What are they doing? So I'd just like to start this episode out before we go any further. Dave Lemieux, we're big fans. We're both subscribers to Dave's Picks, and we'd love to talk to you about your first show, which was released as Dave's Picks Thirty Six for its thirty sixth anniversary and our thirty sixth episode. So if you're in our audience and you want to reach out to Dave Lemieux and just give him a nudge by all means. We're really hoping to have Dave on and talk to him about that first show. But today's show, we're talking about Dave's Picks Volume 45, just released a couple weeks ago. Two shows from the Paramount Theater in Portland, Oregon on October 1st and 2nd, 1977. But Dave, it's been a long while since we've we've connected. Well, we you and I have connected, but not on the mic. <laughs> You're kind of spoiling what happened, but yeah, let's dive in to the days between. Diving right in. Yeah, the days between have been pretty crazy for us both. Yeah, um, but always one of the better days between when I get to talk about going to see you in person, went up to Raleigh, had a fun trip. The arrival of Dave's Picks 45 threw a little wrench into recording plans for other shows we'd like to talk about. Um, but I'm going to keep beating that Dave Lemieux drum. Dave Lemieux liked one of my Twitter uh, comments, so... <laughs> I think we're getting close. We're getting closer to having him on. Um, other than that, days between stuff, a lot of deaths in the celebrity musician world, which is very sad. Beck and uh, David Crosby both passed away since we recorded. Beck died? Sorry, Jeff Beck. Oh, okay. I, okay, yeah, Jeff Beck. That is very, yeah. very sad. And he is um, a legend. But I thought much younger no, Beck. No, no, no. Not, like, not younger <laughs> contemporary respect sorry mr jeff beck died um so that's very sad so a kind of seesaw days between i'm getting to see you which was great celebrity deaths which are sad and we were both pretty busy at work i think a lot of people are slammed oh man yeah a lot of people are in the same cycle and if you are i hope that you're getting through it but you know december is such a slow month i think in not just the u.s but around the world folks are slowing down for the holidays as the year wraps up and now a lot of the projects that were put off until January and December, those those chickens have come home to roost now. And so it's been really busy. So we wanted to get another episode out in January, but we just we didn't have time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the good news is we did all the prep for it. So we'll have another one ready to go pretty quickly after this one, which is great. But um, yeah, it's been a busy time. I, I will add one other note from the days between. This is a very recent one in the days between because you and I are recording this on February 5th. And this weekend, last night, the fourth and tonight, the fifth, Phil and friends are playing in Denver at the Mission Ballroom. And uh, it's the same, I think, exact lineup as when I saw him in at the Cap in Port Chester in the fall. So a, a lineup that I'm very familiar with and a great lineup with um, Molo and uh, Rick from Goose and the Trey Anastasio band horn section with Natalie Cressman and James Casey and one more 
talented player whose name I'm blanking on. I apologize to that person. But I want to read you the set list from last night because it's, I think, the weirdest dead or dead related set list I've ever heard of, bar none. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Set one Dark Star into Ripple. Okay. Wow. <laughs> you can stop there. It's already weird. <laughs> oh my God. This is nothing, uh. Dave. Here we go. Dark Star into Ripple, Ship of Fools, Jack Straw, Pride of Cucamonga. Whoa. That is, I mean, that's as deep a cut as you're getting. <laughs> Phil wanted to sing in the first set, apparently, which is great. Then China Cat, New Speedway Boogie, and then Crosby Stills and Nash cover. Speaking of David Crosby, long time gone. Phil said at the set break, turn and talk to the person next to you, share a joint, shake hands, and then walked off the stage. And then they got into it in the second set. Viola Lee, I Know You Rider, Unbroken Chain, another Phil song. So Phil sang the first three songs of the second set. Comparatively, when I saw Phil in October, he sang one song the entire night. So now he's sung four so far. Um, Warf Rat, Help Slip into Mississippi Half Step, sang by Rick, into Franklin's, and then an encore box of rain. Man. Yeah. <laughs> that's wacky, but that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah. So good stuff. Um, I listened to part of the second set. If you search for it, you can find someone who's live streaming the audio at least. And that's what I did. And um, it sounded really good. I can't believe, I mean, Phil's struggles with his voice are well-documented, but relatively speaking for an 82 year old, he still sounds great. I think I would be pretty charmed by him singing no matter what at this point in time. You know, it's not like he sounds like he did on the studio recording of Box of Rain, but for an 82-year-old who's been singing this song for 53 years, pretty good. So anyway, I just thought that was worth shouting out in the days between because it's such an odd set list with, I mean, Unbroken yeah. Chain and Pride of Cucamonga alone is just so bizarre that both would be in the same set or the same show. But then you get the other wackiness. I do like Help Slip Half Step Frank, though. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I'd kind of like to hear... Uh, dead and co take a crack at that to be honest anyway that's the days between one last thing happy birthday to this show this show's a year old as of four days ago four days ago yeah so congrats to you congrats to me congrats to you the listeners too because without you guys we would probably not still be doing this thank you so much you know if you've listened in the first year and if you've you know subscribed or followed or given us a review or anything like that you know, I know a lot of podcasts talk about like, oh, it helps us so much. We're just doing this for the love of the game. So it kind of doesn't really matter <laughs> if you rate and subscribe beyond just us appreciating it. But from from us, it really like my heartfelt appreciation. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, it's really very flattering and humbling. Um, so thank you all for that. And uh, here's to even more um, in 2023 more more you know unique shows and more guests hopefully we loved all the people who came on last year shout out to all of them and um and again to you the listener all right that's the days between let's get on to the show dave's picks volume 45 October 1st and 2nd, 1977 at the Paramount Theater in Portland. So where are we when this show happens? We've got that good 70s deadline up that you know and love. 
all the all the all the people that you come to expect. What's happening on October first and second, nineteen seventy seven? The top album in the land, as it was for most of seventy seven, is Rumors. It was number one on the Billboard charts for twenty eight out of the fifty two weeks in nineteen seventy seven. Truly a blockbuster record. Mm-hmm. Um, number two is Simple Dreams by Linda Ronstadt. Linda was all over my Twitter feed this week. I don't know why, but shout out to her. She's a legend and made some really great music. Simple Dreams, I mean, is an album that really in many other years would have been number one, but it just was never going to pass rumors. As they said in um, Wayne's World 2, I think, or Wayne's World 1, one of them, uh, when Wayne's girlfriend gets a vinyl of that and Wayne's like, rumors? They practically sent that out with the phone books. Like literally everyone had that album. (laughs) Um, also on the, on the billboard charts this week in 1977 on, um, October 1st, number 28 Terrapin station. Hey, nice. Seventh week on the charts. And this was its peak at number 28. Um, believe it or not, this album would not go gold for another 10 years. It was re-released on CD in 87 to capitalize on the, in the dark success. And at that point it went gold, um, for the first time, which is kind of cool. We our second episode from last year, from actually right around this time, maybe almost exactly a year ago, was about Dave Spix Volume 41, which was also a 77 release. And so we talked a lot about the year 77 back then. And one thing that I mentioned was how disco was like really in. It was starting to really come in in a big way. And then 78, we've talked about a couple of shows from 78, and it's always the Bee Gees like all over the charts. Um, the number one Billboard song, though, this week was a disco song. It was the Star Wars theme slash Cantina Band song, the disco-fied <laughs> version by the band Miko, M-E-C-O. Wow. Uh, yeah, kind of odd. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, Star Wars was, uh, speaking of blockbusters, I mean, yeah, the blockbuster I mean, of all blockbusters in many ways. Right? Totally changed film um, forever. Um, number two, speaking of disco, Keep It Coming. Oh, sorry, Keep It Coming Love by Casey and the Sunshine Band. And then number three, Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac, an absolute classic. Mm-hmm. Birthdays. We got some some really good ones on the first and the second. Um, starting with the first of October, you have Jimmy Carter. Um, okay. At, at this point in time, I guess soon to be the president. Um, Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins, oh. among other things, an absolute legend. And the Big Mac, Mark McGuire. Wow. Also, and I found this kind of interesting, this is the first first of the month I think we've ever talked about, but it's also the first time we've talked about the first day of a fiscal quarter. And I know Mm, that's like a kind of a nerdy, weird thing to say, but here's why it's relevant. Because the first day of fiscal quarters is when a lot of big things happen in the business world. And so when you look at the world events that have happened on October 1st, Uh there are a a lot in the 20th century and the 21st century that are are really big. Um, Some of them that stood out. The first World Series began on October 1st, 1903. Oh, very cool. Yep. Um, Ford launched the Model T on this day in 1908. Mm-hmm. Disney World opened on this day in 1971. Sony launched the compact disc and the CD player in Japan on this day in 1981, so 10 years after Whoa. Disney World. And then five years after that, to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Disney World, Disney opened Epcot on this day. So... All these kind of big things happening, and I do think that it's because it was day one of the fourth fiscal quarter, so they could, you know, have that on the books for the whole quarter and show the success of that. Yeah. On the second of October, you have tons of birthdays, um, a lot of musical icons too. Um, Gandhi, first and foremost. Also, Sting and Don McLean, Kelly Ripa, and 
Aaron Hicks. Wow. This is a good little birthday run here. It is. It is indeed. October 1st and 2nd. Some good days of the year. So the year for the dead. Again, we talked about this a lot in episode two. So if you want to hear more about what 77 was like for the dead, you can go check that out. Or also go check out um, Dave Lemieux's Seaside Chat for this release. It's on dead.net and it's on the dead's YouTube page. He talks a lot about what they were doing, but you probably already know a lot about 77 because of spring 77, the most legendary tour that the Grateful Dead ever embarked on. For many people, the high point of their playing. And so spring 77 gets a ton of love. And then in the fall of 77, you have English Town, which is a legendary concert in its own right. That was on September 3rd um, in front of 110,000 fans in English Town, New Jersey. So 77 is talked about, I think, quite a bit in the Grateful Dead's history. And there have been a ton of releases from 77. If I believe my math is right, I think this is the seventh Dave's Picks alone from 1977. There are also multiple Dick's Picks, roads, Road Trips, um, and uh, and box sets from 77. So lots of, of official releases from this year. And I think that there are a lot of reasons why, but one of them is just how, how smooth everything sounded. It sounded a really kind of effortless in a lot of ways. Like they were just on it. And it's something that you talked about when you and I were texting about the CD during the week was how it can almost feel boring because it's the antithesis of Jim and Marilyn's warts and all theory where you want those warts and you want to hear, you know, them struggling a little bit. So that effect is definitely heard on these releases, I think. Yeah. The analogy that I use is it's like playing golf with my dad. He does exactly what you're supposed to. And then he hits the ball in the center of the fairway and the center of the green, like every shot. But that kind of golf gets boring after a while. Cause you're not, you're not looking you're not for your ball in the woods. You're not, yeah. Taking that dangerous chip shot. You're, you know, yeah, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And it's so smooth and effortless and pristine. I mean, there are some songs that we'll talk about where it's almost like as if it's the studio version. Yeah. Because it's so error free and such high quality. Um, but yeah, no warts, not not a Jim and Maryland esque release. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so I will talk a little bit about this tour in, in particular. Um, after spring seventy seven, they had a, a few shows back in California in early June, and then no shows until English Town on the third of September, like I said. Uh, this is because, as you likely know, Mickey was involved in a really bad car crash in June and he needed some time to recover. Uh, he had a, I believe a broken arm. He had some serious, uh, like facial injuries and things like that. He was in really rough shape. Even for English town, he was, he was hurting. You would never know based on how he sounded on this show that he had been recovering from that. After that show in English town, they took another break for like four weeks ish until this tour, which began in Washington at the Paramount Northwest theater in Seattle and then they popped down to Portland, Oregon at this theater, which is called the Paramount. That was all in the same week. So Seattle, Wednesday, Thursday, one day off. And then these two shows, Friday and Saturday. Then they continued on through Tempe, Arizona, Albuquerque, Denver, Norman, Oklahoma, Austin, Houston, and Dallas. And then they concluded the show, or excuse me, the tour in Baton Rouge. All of those stops were one night, whereas Portland and, and Seattle were two nights apiece. And the dead had a real, real loving fan base in the Pacific Northwest by this time. One thing that Dave talked about 
well, actually, before I get into that, after this, they had about 10 days off and then they were back at it for a run of eight shows in 10 days, beginning in Kansas City and running all around the Midwest and then upstate New York. They dipped into Toronto for one night, but it's just like a bunch of stops in upstate New York. They didn't go to Boston or Hartford or New York City or any of those familiar haunts. They just, for whatever reason, stayed in upstate. Um, what I was saying about a point that Dave made uh, relates to this venue. So this venue, the Paramount Theater, aka the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall, it is still open in Portland today. You can go there. Um, it originally opened as the Portland Publix Theater, which is a vaudeville venue in 1928. And then it changed to the Paramount Theater in 1930 because the owners had a contract to run Paramount Films. So it was a, mm. if, you want, if you want to see a Paramount movie, this is where you went. Go there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they continued to show movies all the way up until 1972, and then it changed to a concert venue. The capacity was between 2,500 and 3,000, which is obviously a far cry from the 110,000 that had seen them just a month before these shows. And the point that Dave made that I thought was interesting was in 1974, they played in the Trailblazers Arena when they stopped in Portland. So much bigger venue. Yeah. But I think because part of the hiatus, the reason for the hiatus in 75 is just burnout and wanting to get back to their roots. It made sense to stop in an intimate spot and have a couple of nights in a smaller venue. And I do wonder if they would have maybe wish that they could do that in 1991 outside of their side acts, you know, rat dog and JGB. I don't think that they realistically could have at that point because they were in such high demand. I think that ticket prices and scalpers and stuff, it would have just gone crazy and maybe even been a dangerous situation, but in, yeah. in, in 77, they still could. And so it's kind of cool that you have these two shows with a pretty intimate crowd of about 3000 each night. It was still a financially lucrative uh, drop in for them inside the album. They have like their financial statements basically from these nights and they made about 22 grand for two nights of performing. But when you think about it, that's really not that much for, you know, at this point, what is it? Six members of the band and then that their road crew manager, whatever. Um, it's a lot of mouths to feed. And, you know, I think I didn't do the math of how much they made combined on this set of shows it's all in there you could do the math um but you know not like they're making an insane amount of money by any stretch these were the fifth sixth and final times the dead played at this venue they started here in 72 and then um jgb also made a stop here in 78 but this was a a, a place that they really like to play and so it's it's cool they got to stop back here i'll put a link in the show notes of um a great blog about the paramount theater from jerry garcia's broke down palaces the blog um it was just a wild and ornate building in its heyday with like a giant marble concession stand and murals on all the walls very fancy um curtains that got you into the showroom it sounded to me like an even more ornate version of the capitol theater if, if for those of you who have been there um, that place is so cool and it has this vibe like an old like an old theater and this place is like that the the um they have a huge sign outside that says portland and that alone i think i read that it had like 7000 lights in it um to say portland they had chandeliers all throughout the building it's crazy wow yeah so really definitely check out that blog it's so cool and shout out to that that blog for putting together all this information cuz it's fascinating 
Um, I also should say that this theater, like I said, it's still open today. There were massive renovations done in the 80s that were funded by Arlene Schnitzer, who the theater is now named after. And today it's mostly used for orchestral music, stand-up comedy, a bunch of scholarly lectures happen here, and some musicals. One thing that's kind of cool in Dead World is that Mickey Hart's longtime collaborator, Zakir Hussein, is performing here on March 21st this year. So you can go check him out if you're in the Portland area um, yeah. at the Schnitzer Concert Hall and take a look around and think about what it would have been like, um, what would it be, 46 years ago, just about watching the Dead play there. Okay, well, let's get into the show, uh, the show itself in the set list. Do you want to talk about the album art first? Yeah, that's exactly or- what I was going to say. Let's begin there. So this album, the artwork is done by John Vogel, who is the Dead's artist in residence of uh, 2023. So he'll be doing the artwork for this show, the next three, and the bonus disc, which is really cool. He has a very distinct style and his his work is beautiful. You may be familiar with his work if you got the Dead & Company VIP poster from 2018 because he designed that. And it looks really similar to this. Same color palette. Um, similar thing going on with the skull and the flowers. Um, it's really beautiful and he does great work. So shout out to John. Um, unlike in years past, we've gotten like a little write up of this is who the artist in residence is and a little interview where like with Helen two years ago, my fellow nutmegger who just killed it in 2021 as the artist in residence. Um, last year, I think his name was Matt Adams. He also did a great job. We got like a little write up of, you know, what does the dead mean to you? You know, stuff like that. Um, we haven't gotten that yet, but I'll be curious to read it when we do, but this is cool artwork. It's like a, a train coming down the tracks. Um, and it's actually coming to a cross in the tracks It could go either left or right. Um, and on the front of the train is a massive skeleton skull with a, the 13 point lightning bolt on his forehead and it's number one Oh two. And then kind of framing the skull is bunch of kind of flowers that are in the smoke from the train with some like little bouquets of orange flowers at the bottom. And then you can see like all a big green landscape with a bunch of mountains in the background, kind of evocative of the Pacific Northwest. I think it's pretty cool. I like this artwork. I really like it. It's a little more simplistic than some of the album work last year, but the color palette, that blue and orange combo is great. And then yeah, just it's like simple, but it delivers really well. Completely agree. You look at it and it's just like simple, but effective. Mm-hmm. I'll be really excited to see what he does with the future releases because he's got a, he does great work. You can go to his website as well, johnvogel.com and check out some of his artwork that he's done in recent years for Billy Strings and Elton John. I mean, he, so many people that he's done really cool concert posters for. So go check those out and, and support John. All right. So the set lists, this is a four disc release. Historically, we've gotten one four disc release per year for the last few years. Um, and it's kind of jumped around which release it has been, um, for the first two that I remember 36 and 40 were both two disc releases or two show releases over four discs. But then last year, I believe it was the third release, the one that came out in the summer that was four releases, four discs, sorry. And now this one is the first release of the year, which is kind of cool. One thing that Dave said in the Seaside chat is that October 2nd has long been considered a top show for 77. And 
I'm glad that I didn't listen to that until after I had heard the shows, but I did come to the same conclusion. <laughs> I think that the second is a better show than the first. Did you have one just kind of high level that you preferred over the other? Yeah, the second show is leaps and bounds better than the than October 1st. And that's not that October 1st is bad. It's just this October 2nd has a couple a couple more standout moments whereas October 1st just is almost so smooth it's forgettable. Like it mm. there's nothing that well with the exception of one thing, in my opinion, there's nothing that jumps out and grabs you. Um, whereas October 2nd has two or three of those moments. It's like it's been sanded down so much that it's just so smooth you don't get any bumps where there are higher peaks in the second the second show. Right. So I do think that there are still some highlights from night one, um, some things that stand out to me, but... And it is, they, I mean, they're playing so well. It's like crazy to say, because like, if you put this, this show October 1st in other years, even other years in the seventies, it would be like, wow, that's a really, really good show. But yeah. a theme that, that you experience throughout is they really keep a lot of these songs extremely tight. Like mm -hmm. they're like four or five minute versions of songs where they like, it's almost like you want to be like, come on, just push it, <laughs> just push it more. Yeah. You know, it's not like a monster monster. Like, cause think about like Europe 72, very few of those shows would fit on two discs. They're mostly three disc shows. The fact that they could fit both of these on two discs tells you how tight, how tightly they were playing, but how tight they were keeping the songs, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. So um, with that being said, let's get into it. Let's start with disc one. Disc one is the biggest disc in the track in the, the set as far as songs go. It's 13 songs. And it is all of set one from night one. And then in addition, the beginning of set two. The first two songs is set two. Yep. Right. So it starts with um Promise Land and then they love each other. Promise Land was the most common show opener of 77. They opened 15 shows with it. Uh, it's also the third most common show opener overall and the second most common show opener of the 70s. So wow. pretty chalk set opener. I don't really have any thoughts about this song at all, to be honest. It's a good way to open the show as it always is, but it was not a particularly memorable version for me. Just one thing to know, and Dave Lemieux talks about this in the liner notes, that there was like damage to the Betty boards on oh, yeah. this and they love each other. So when this started, I was playing this in the um, CD player that projects out through the TV. And Gabby was like, for a 77 show, this sound quality is not very good. And I was like, huh, yeah, that's weird. And then I read why. And I was like, oh, okay. And we still get it, which is great. They didn't have to cut it or anything like that. But the sound quality starts very low. But don't get discouraged. It picks back up for the end of They Love Each Other. Yeah, so it's uh, the an audience recording by Bob Menke that they use. Shout out to Bob. It's cool, actually, I think. So They Love Each Other starts, like you said, with that Bob version, the, the Bob Menke audience tape. And then at exactly 420, it, it literally, to the second, 420, it kicks on to the real version, which I'm not sure if it's an accident or not. It feels like it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> they Love Each Other, so... They opened shows with this sequence, Promised Land into They Love Each Other, 17 times between 76 and 79. So pretty common sequence to open the shows. 
even with the the audience quality for the first few minutes of this, I think this is a great they love each other. It actually makes it to me extra special kind of when it kicks into the Betty board version that sounds pristine at 420 because it reminds me of that moment in Wizard of Oz where you go from um, black and white to color. It's like, whoa, now we're talking. And um, the first time I heard it, I didn't know what, I had no idea that that was the case. I didn't know that it was coming. I just assumed that it would, because, you know, they're not going to release an official tape that is just an audience version. So I was like, it's going to get better at some point. I just don't know when. And um, that became kind of a cool moment. things for me on this one just great rhythm all around phil's dropping bombs but he's also really getting comfortable higher up the neck with some kind of interesting higher notes and the drummers just sound great really throughout the show but um, on this song as well um, and then the other thing is around 315 keith goes into a really groovy solo that i really really like and then uh it's about a minute long and then right at 420 the sound quality improves and we get a jerry solo that lasts more than a minute that's i think really excellent so I think that this is a really nice version of They Love Each Other and a cool moment to boot with the the audience fading into the the full soundboard. Masses are low on this one, 147 on heady version. Man, well, the masses are tough, but <laughs> hey, that's okay. Okay, you have any any other thoughts on They Love Each Other before we keep keep it going? Nothing that you didn't already point out, but just get ready to talk about the drummers for pretty much the next hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the next song I also don't have much on Mexicali Blues, pretty, pretty chalky version. But one thing I do think is interesting is that it's Mexicali and then Direwolf. Mm-hmm. Interesting bedfellows, those two. But before we talk about that, do you have anything specific on Mexicali? Just that, Bob, it's. Uh, it's hard to think of shows where his vocals sound better than they did here yeah. for this Mexicali blues. I mean, he was, he sounded pristine and then into dire wolf. I mean, you know, my thoughts on a slow dire wolf like this, like this sing songy version pass. <laughs> I really like this version. Um, they had busted this out earlier in the week in Seattle for the first time since they went on the hiatus. Um, it was an 82 show gap since 1974 that they hadn't played this before the 28th of September. And so I think probably a number of fans did go to both Seattle and Portland, but the ones who didn't go to Seattle probably were not expecting this. And so I think that's kind of cool. Also of the 443 times they played Mexicali blues, only six times did they take it into Direwolf, And this was wow. the second to last. So that's kind of a cool thing too, that it's just like a rare, rare one, two punch. Yeah. So I dug this direwolf. It's just kind of interesting to have it. Um, I do see what you're saying about the slow pace, but the next song should have cleansed your palate because this is about the fastest Cassidy I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yes. So Cassidy was kind of this dividing line between between me thinking like, man, this is a pretty weak show. And okay, this is a pretty good show. 
Because, <laughs> yeah, the first four songs, I just, I wasn't really invested in. I wasn't really in on until Cassidy, where the drummers are going about 100 miles an hour, but they managed to keep the volume low, which allowed it to be like a sweet song and simultaneously a burner. And I thought that that was pretty cool. Completely agree. I My note was... um Jerry's basically playing that Indian bead string guitar solo from the first second to the last on this song. Like he just does not (laughs) let up. And then the jam they bust into around like the two minute mark, the only word I could think of is breathless. It's like, it's almost like bordering on frantic. Everyone Mm -hmm. is just playing so hard for like the entire little jam. The drumming, like you said, is so fast. It's they're just cooking. Jerry and Bobby are both, almost playing like lead guitarists at the same time, yep. but it, it doesn't sound chaotic. It just, it sounds good. And then Phil is just kind of bubbling below in the mix and Keith is pretty persistent and he's high in the mix. So you can really hear him um, on this song. You know, I'm not a huge Cassidy head and I love this version. Yeah, I'm not either. And um, I really enjoyed this. Something else that I really enjoyed, this was kind of the first time that Bob and Donna really melded um, was on this song. And you know how I love that. Oh yeah. They're um, great. Uh, yeah. And if you thought they were great on this song, just wait until a couple more songs from now, because yeah. I think that they hit their high point in a little while. Uh, just a great version. One last note on Cassidy. There's a drum roll right after the fare thee well now part that is just like bone rattling. It's so great. Let's hear it. It's Mickey, actually, but I don't know. I mean, it's more more of a Billy thing to do, probably, but um, I'm not sure. So Cass- from Cassidy, we go into Deal. When they started playing Deal, I was like, whoa, is this going to be a six-song first set? Like, Cassidy into Deal to end set one seemed like such chalk to me that I was like, this is so bizarre that they're doing this right now. So I looked it up. Um they played Cassidy into Deal 34 times, and 29 of those times it was to end the first set. Whoa. Yeah, this was the second to last time they did it that it didn't end the first set. Um, and it was like this one once in 78, and then from that point on, if they played Cassidy and then Deal, it was to end set one every they single time. They were taking time. a break. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So just kind of weird. I don't have a ton of notes on Deal. This is one of those ones kind of like what you were saying at the beginning where it's like this could be like, you know, there it could be like, an album cut almost with how clean it sounds. Yeah. Just so in sync. So smooth. Um, the last minute was a ton of fun, but I'm with you. Other than that, it was just, yeah, just so smooth from start to finish. There's almost nothing to say. Yeah. From here, a song that I think there is a lot to say about uh, passenger. Now your mileage may vary on passenger. I'm willing to accept that. Um, we've talked about it on the show before a Phil Lesh penned song for Donna and Bobby is a rarity. And I just, I mean, I really like the song. I don't know any bad versions of passenger, like off the top of my head, I can't think of any, but this one feels like really energetic and it's just like burning um, throughout the entire song. 
Donna and Bob have some snarl on their vocals in this song. Yeah, like they do. They're, they're working it. And I, I am so here for it. Uh, so I think for me, this is like a, a top tier passenger. I'll have what Billy and Mickey are having just because the <laughs> rhythm devils are on it. Speaking of energetic and just snarl in the vocals, there's a little snarl in the drums with just how much they're going at it. Um, I loved Jerry's edgy tone. He does like a lot of slides, which is kind of not a Jerry way to play guitar, but his tone made the slides. He did more powerful and energetic. Um, 57 on heady version. So wow, a little lower than I thought after my first time listening to it. Yeah. But I'm with you. I, I like Passenger. I love when Donna lets it rip. Oh, yeah. Fairly low by masses by masses standards because they didn't play this song a ton. Yeah, they played it ninety eight times, so that makes this a bottom half bottom half passenger. So Mm. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go vote on it because that's just disrespectful. This (laughs) is a really good version. I think people just aren't as high on this show um, as they are the night the the following night, and so maybe some of these songs just don't don't fully get the love. Yeah, I mean, spoiling a little bit, there are two songs from this whole show that are very highly rated um, from October 1st, but uh, Passenger is not one of them. Neither is the next one, Tennessee Jed, which surprised me too, because I was really digging this version of Jed. Me too. Um, from start to finish, this like good ragtime Jed. Jerry says something, it was hard to hear, but it's something about like, do you want to do a long one after those short ones or something like that? Um, and they do. And they, yeah, and they do. Um, yeah. I, what about you? What were your thoughts on this Jed? My first note was this is on the longer side. Um, I think it is for a Jed. Uh, it's like almost nine minutes long. So that's pretty good. Um, I'm definitely here for it. Uh, as I've become a, a late stage Jed head in my, in my old age, um, <laughs> I've liked like the last five versions of Tennessee Jed that we've heard. And so I I can't even deny it at this point. I'm I'm here for Jed. I think that Jerry's solo between like the 530-ish mark and 645 is just excellent. And Bob's rhythm is part of what makes it as great as it is. Like his rhythm during the solo is just tremendous. And so, yeah, I really liked this Jed. I think that I just think it's it's really nice. And I do think it's good to have one at least longer version because Cassidy Deal Passenger, um, I mean, really, like it's like the seven songs before this. It's not just a couple, right? Like Mexicali, They Love Each Other is almost nine minutes, if I remember correctly. But then Mexicali through Passenger, they're all less than seven for sure. And I think all of them are less than six even. Dave's nodding in approval. So yeah, they're Deep all short. Deal is a hair over six, but other than that. Um... And even that there's like a tuning break at the end on the album, on the album. So I think that playing maybe is less mm. than six. Like they're all pretty tight songs. So it's nice to have a longer one. And then we get a couple of other longer ones as we keep going. But yeah, I thought it was good. And then we go, this is a, a, a Dave's one, two punch right here. Tennessee Jed and new Minglewood back to back. I mean, come yeah. on. So yeah. tell us, Tell us, uh, tell us about this new Englewood. Kind of similar to what you were saying about Cassidy, where Jerry just like kind of starts noodling and then he doesn't stop until the very end of the song. Um, just a continuous run by him soloing around. The drumming continued to be superb in the first half of the song. 
until like almost the exact halfway point of this song. And then Billy and Mickey got out of sync and there was like a real sneakery part um, for about 10 seconds. Uh, but Jerry saved the day with a great solo finish. Um, number 81, Minglewood on Heady Version. How does that feel Which, to you? That feels about right. This was not a this was not a sit back and not take notes, Minglewood, because I was just blown away by how great it was. This was just a a fine Minglewood. Um so maybe similar to your thoughts on the deal. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. From here we go and we get uh Peggio, um, which is the penultimate song of set one. I thought this was a nice song, I don't I don't think that we've talked about this on our program yet. I think really? this might be a program debut. That's insane to me, but <laughs> potentially I do really like Peggio a lot. There's a, a really good podcast. It's called America's Dead, a really good podcast that is produced by Sonos of all places. Um, it talks with different figures about the Grateful Dead in a variety of contexts. And the first episode is with someone that you and I both like, Ezra Koenig, who is a, a known, a noted deadhead in the, the lead creative force of Vampire Weekend. And in it, he mentioned something that I was pretty surprised by, which was he's like, I've probably listened to 200 versions of Peggy O. And I was like, that's an interesting wow. song to like really latch onto. Yeah. But I kind of understand why, because number one, it's just a nice song. Like it's just, Nice feels like a good word for it. It's very kind. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's sweet too. It's like, you know, I would marry you and like, it, but my pennies are too few. Like I would love to marry you, but I don't think I can. I'm broke as hell. And like your parents aren't going to accept that. And so what are we going to do here? Because I love you, but I don't think I can be with you. Um, It's a kind of sweet, somber, traditional song that the dead put their own stamp on for sure. And it's also a really good showcase a lot of time for Jerry to have some really great soulful solos, which is something that he does as well as any guitarist I know of. So I can see why this would be one that someone would really latch onto. And this is a good version of it. There's that, you know, classic Jerry soulful playing. The singing is really, really good. The pace is pretty much what I like in a Peggio. It's not too fast, but not too slow. Um, it's just, it's just nice. And, um, so I was really here for this, but I do think that it gets a bit overshadowed by what comes after it in, in my memory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just because what comes next is so fantastic. But yeah, the comment skipping like a pebble upon a river, I think is really sweet and evocative for this. I'm not a peg head. I don't really <laughs> turn up for this song, but I, I do think it's very sweet. Um. <laughs> Number 47, Peggio on Heady Version. And a song they played a lot more than I thought they did. Um, there's a lot of versions out there, over 200, because Ezra Koenig can go listen to them. But <laughs> I yeah, thought true. this wasn't that common of a song. So that was a interesting fact for me. Yeah, played 263 times between its introduction in 73, and then played all the way until, I think, the end. Yeah, they played it through their last show. So they played wow. it forever. Actually, this is kind of interesting. The longest gap that they ever took with this song from the time that they introduced it until they stopped playing. The longest one that I'm seeing is 29 shows. So huh. pretty much once they introduced it, it was like, this is this song is coming out. 
yeah. we're, we're, we're busting it out. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm happy to have it here. I'm really happy to have the music never stops. Um, me too. So this is a fantastic version of the music never stops. Uh, I think I would say that even including the entire second set, I think this is the high point of this show. It is really, really good. Jerry's playing on it is fantastic. And another Bob and Donna showcase. They sound mm. so good on this song. Yeah, they do. This song kind of divides into three parts. You have like the, you know, very structured verse chorus beginning, which was a bass showcase. Then you get the the middle part, which was like a little, a little spacey jam. They didn't go way out kind of back to your point about they kept things very tight in 77. They didn't, they were not going to explore. Like if they went into space, it would, they just dip their toe in and, but this is as out. far out as they went in this set. I yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then the act three, Jerry just pulls everyone out of the groove and Phil and Keith follow, and they go for a powerhouse ending to this song. Jerry starts shredding a hundred miles an hour. The <laughs> symbols suffocate your senses. I mean, it goes, it goes hard. Yeah. Um, and yeah, easily the, the peak of the, of the first set let alone the whole show and uh number nine music never stopped on heady version so a top 10 slammer to end set one wow damn i'm i'm not shocked that it's in the top 10 but i am a bit surprised because they played the bejesus out of this song and um so like that's really really high praise from our from our friends the masses because they played this song 237 times and so for it to be a top 10, that's, that's pretty good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I love this version. I don't have anything to add because I think your analysis is, is perfect. So we do stay on this disc though, for two more songs. Like you said, we get the first two from set two, beginning with uh Bertha into good loving um, Bertha, the second most common set two opener of 1977. They opened 10 second sets with this song. Uh, it's also the fifth most common um, set to opener of all time, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, they, I mean, this kind of, so I really like Bertha a lot. I mean, like a lot of these songs, like I like deal dire wolf, like a lot of passenger there's songs that I really like. And yet it's just like such a kind of standardly good version. It's just such a, yeah, like a stock, smooth and and stock free but like a stock good version though it's like yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like a like a classic like 8.5 out of 10 or like b plus bertha you know it's not like it's a oh well this is like a fine bertha no it's a good bertha but mm-hmm. it's just 
it doesn't have that zhuzh. It doesn't have that like je ne sais quoi that makes you think like, oh, but that's a that's a real good Bertha. Um, and so, and honestly, I feel the same way about Good Lovin'. And I, I when I heard this combo, I was like, okay, this is interesting because Good Lovin'. They retired for a little while after Pigpen died, and they brought it back with Bob singing it. But this wasn't like the beginning of that. They had been playing it since they came back from the hiatus, and even a little bit in '74, because there are some versions where Jerry is playing organ in '74 of Good Lovin'. And so, like, they're well polished with this. It's not like it's a unique thing, um, and it's just kind of a fine version. And the other thing is, I don't know how you feel about this. Good luck. I mean, like. When you look at like the most common set two openers, like the reason it's fifth is because I'm sure number one and two are China Cat and and Scarlet, and then maybe Estimated. Although Estimated usually they would do one song and then they would go into Estimated Eyes in set two. Right. Um, I think they opened a good number of second sets with Ico too, um, but it's just like Good Lovin', kind of like the Chuck Berry songs. It feels like it should be. I don't know. Like the energy of it just feels like a later, like a post drums is more of a fitting place for it. Huh. Um, once, once Bob took over with pig pen, throw it wherever you want. I mean, it's like the show changes when pig pen takes the mic. It's almost like you're stepping aside. It's a departure from what else is going on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just, I found it not as satisfying in this place in the set list. And so I found myself a little bit less taken by it. I think using the masses rankings it's the number 64 bertha on heady version and the number 65 good lovin almost weird that they're exactly the same and you know good lovin is kind of all over the place with years because of the pig pen era and, and then bringing it back with bob and just thought that was very weird how they're almost in the exact same spot they could be playing in the playing game in a march madness tournament of um bertha's and <laughs> good lovin's <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, what, what did you think? typically you... you're Bonnie. So you're used to that. Oh, ow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So what did you think about Bertha and good Lovin' to close out disc one? I, I got nothing to add on either of them. I, I mean, just, it, it's almost, it's almost so smooth. It's boring. I mean, that's, that's really all I got. I like how Bertha's up tempo. Um, the drumming is very good. I mean, that's I'm just repeating myself at this point. Yeah, fair. Well, I mean, it it just kind of, it is what it is with this show. I mean, it is, it, it's great. And I'm happy to have it as a release. Um, I was saying this to you. I've been really deep on 93 lately for whatever reason. And so hearing this, I mean, like literally the last five shows I had heard before this, before the CD arrived were 93 shows. And so, and not for our show, just for fun. And so then, oh, and a couple dead and co shows. And so then I got to this after that and was like, oh shit, (laughs) this is crazy good. (laughs) And then I got to discs three and four and was like, no, 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 this is crazy good. Like this is that good, good. But the first stuff, the first two discs are, are still like, again, like eight out of 10 Grateful Dead music. It's not bad at all. It's, it's good. It's just, you know, when you're, what we're hoping for in listening to Grateful Dead shows is that something special, you know, the thing that really takes you and makes you go, Oh, Whoa. Um, and there's some of that in the music never stopped. Um, but I think the problem that I found with the second disc of this release is I didn't find any of that. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, 
disc two, I think of these four discs is the weakest. I think the disc one, you could make an argument that it's the second best disc in this box. Um, but disc two for me is the one that I was the least taken by. And it starts with, it must've been the roses, which is a nice song. Um, and this is a fine performance, but it's not particularly interesting to me. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's very clean and kind. And right as I feel like they start to really go somewhere near the end, when Jerry rips into the solo, they cut it and they end the song. And that I was like, mm, I wish that they, I wish they kept that going for another minute to see where that would have taken them. Um, but it must yeah, have I, the think, I think that there are two moments on this disc that are, that salvage it from, you know, being totally forgettable, but I, well, I was with you. I think that this disc offers the least of the four. Well, we, let's be honest. If we're going to get this episode out as quickly as we can, we got to, we got to pick up the pace a little bit. So tell True. me what those two moments are and I'll tell you what my favorite moment is. And we'll leave it there with this disc because it's neither of our favorites. And so um, if you love this disc, get in touch with us and tell us why. And we'll, we'll share that with our audience because I'd, I'd be, yeah, I'd love to hear why. Um, but for me, it just wasn't my favorite for me. The dancing in the street was the high point. Um, and then kind of everything around that I was less, less taken by. Yeah. I dancing in the street was one of those two moments for me, the transition from eyes of the world, um, which was pretty good, but into dancing in the street with this, like, weirdly aggressive cowbell yes that was you know kind of fascinating maybe the only time it's appropriate to say less cowbell but (laughs) i don't know that there's ever a time for that the bob donna harmony is just amazing in dancing in the streets and then what i what i thought was cool was near the end of the song around 8 30 it sounded like jerry like went in and changed his guitar tone settings like he took the wah off and got got like a darker fuzz and it works. Like it really pairs well with Keith going low in the lower range on the piano. So I thought that that like changed to kind of a darker edge was cool mid song. Um, but I'm glad that you liked it too. Yeah, I did. And I, there's another solo, I think between like the five and six minute ish mark that I thought was really, really great too. Very captivating, but yeah. Um, Otherwise, I, I also thought, honestly, the around and around I thought was pretty good. I think Keith's playing with Jerry on that song was really good. Um, it's the most common set closer of 77. They closed 23 shows with that song, so pretty chalky. But even with that, um, I thought it was pretty good. And then the not fade away. So th- this is how the second disc goes. We should say that at least. Yeah. Um, it must have been the roses, then estimated into eyes, into dancing in the street, into drums. Um, then into Not Fade Away, Black Peter, and Around and Around. So the big jam suite is from the second to the last song on this disc. Yeah, it must have been The Roses. I want to go quickly back to that because I'm I'm realizing this right now. That version, that like, as far as a Hunter Garcia song goes, that is like the Hunter Garcia equivalent to how I feel about Looks Like Rain, as far as Bob's catalog goes. It's a fine song. It's not one that I'm going to like skip when I see it on the playlist, but it's not even remotely close to my top songs by them. And so it's just like, it does not really grab me. Also, part of the problem might be, 
I heard Elvis Costello's cover of this song before I heard the Grateful Dead's version. And oh. I think he, I think he has a really good cover of it. And so it also I it makes me think of Elvis Costello pretty much every time I hear it as well. Any other notes on disc two before we keep this train moving? Just that what you talked about with the round and the round, the masses agree with you. It's the number nine around and around on heady version. So another wow. top 10. Um, That's saying something. Version. Yeah. Cause they played the hell out of the song for oh, yeah. 77 closers. Oh yeah. Um, so, okay, nice. All right. Well, um, so a couple of highlights, it's still worth it. I mean, this is still a good, a good, disc it's just it's just not my favorite um all right so now we get into show number two discs number three and four of this box and for me my favorite disc of the release disc number three and mine too all right nice we're on the same page there i love it so disc three we begin the second show with casey jones This is a really great, really great version of Casey Jones on just every level, uh, in my opinion. It is nine minutes long, all killer, no filler. And also, um, it was the first time they had played this post-hiatus. Uh, they had taken 82 shows off from playing this this song, which was by far the longest gap they had taken since they introduced it. There would be some longer gaps in the eighties when they would take more breaks. I think between 84 and 87, they didn't play it. And then they, they took another break after that too, before they brought it back. But I mean, this is a beloved grateful dead song. It got a lot of airplay on the radio. People really liked it and they, they put it away for a little while. And so I think people were also really excited that they brought it back. And I think the band was excited to bring it back because they are cooking on this song. Um, for me, this is like, this is like one of my favorite versions of Casey Jones I've ever heard up there with the 69 one that we heard that I, there was one from 69 that I really, really liked. Um, that's like an early Casey Jones and they were still kind of finding it, but I thought it was really good. This one would be up there with that one for me. I think that, um, when, so do you remember two days ago, I was like, this is, we've got a ton of songs to talk about. We should maybe think about doing a different format. Mm -hmm. And we, you had kind of started to say like, ah, I wasn't as crazy high on this. This is the song I was listening to when we were having that conversation. And that's why I was like, Whoa, what? There are such <laughs> high points in this disc. What are you talking about? Um, and I think that the fact that I was listening to this song when we were having that conversation was re- a real influence because um, spoiler alert, this is the song I'm taking for my playlist. Oh. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I'm really, really high on this Casey Jones. As you should be. It's excellent the end of this song is just powerful so good um and just like around and around your voice for the people this is the number one casey jones on heady version whoa that's crazy i mean it's not crazy it's it's just surprising I, i think it's so on point it's perfect it's a long jammed out casey jones and it just it's just a 
good ripping start to the best disc in the box. Wow. There are some really great Casey Joneses from 1971. Um, I'm kind of surprised none of those are in the top spot, but I, I mean, yeah, great. This one should be, um, that's awesome. Nice. Okay. Good job. Good job. Masses. Love it. Uh, I also love the next song. Um, you can hear after Casey Jones, Phil goes, let's try Jack straw. And Bob goes, Hey now, <laughs> and then <laughs> right into Jack straw. <laughs> and unlike Casey Jones, a very, very, a tight five, Jack tight straw. five. Um, yeah. So kind of the opposite where they jammed out Casey Jones. They, they keep this one short. Yeah. You blink and it moves on by. Uh, my favorite part of the song was the buildup at the almost four minute mark. Like Keith and Billy kind of join in what Jerry and Bob are doing and just start, start some good stuff. Um, but it, I mean, it was so short. There's almost nothing to talk about. Yeah. That's my, my first note is Keith's piano at the beginning is super nuanced. It's just delightful. And then the next one is just a tight, solid version. Not much in the way of frills, just a driven, hot, nice performance. Yeah. Good. Great. We're off to a great start with this show though. Great Casey mm-hmm. Jones, really nice Jack straw. And we're, off to the races. Also, this was the only time they opened a show with um, Casey Jones in 1977. And they don't, I think it's like 20 shows ever that they opened with Casey Jones. So a rarity that that would be how they opened it. So that's pretty cool. Um, and next we get into Sunrise, a Donna Jean jam. Uh, the sparse sound on this song, especially compared to Jack Straw, which is very full and and driven, um, is really nice. And it's a dramatic change from Jack straw. Um, I think that this is a really good version that what Mickey is doing on the drums is really weird and interesting in this song. He and Phil are really locked in. So like Billy is doing his thing and then Mickey is just like playing around on the toms and he, the, his like strikes on the toms, Phil is like matching with him and hitting Mm. some bass notes as he's doing that. They're just really connected. But between like, I would uh, point you to the one minute to one fifteen mark. Um, Phil and Mickey are matching up really nicely and it just sounds wonderful. So I thought that this was a, as far as sunrises go, a pretty good version. Yeah. Number 10 sunrise on heady version. And I think the last time we talked about this song was Dave's picks 41, right? Like the also last 77, 77 release. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not saying we should. St- I'm not saying we should stay in '77, but I do like hearing this song. I wish we got to hear it more. It's great. Another song we love hearing is next, though. So we're we're moving in a great direction here. Mm-hmm. Um, Brown Eyed Women is next. When I first listened to this song, I rewound and listened to the first ten seconds like five times because this just beginning, this little intro lick is just perfect. It is exactly what I would hope for from a brown eyed women. Jerry's mic isn't working at first. And it kind of made me wish like that Samson and Delilah from the Unidome in 78 where Bobby's mic wasn't working. And so they just grooved along for like a minute. Mm-hmm. I kind of wish they would have done that with this. It would be cool to hear like an extended intro to Brown. Eyed yeah, Eyed. that would be cool, but that's all right. Uh, it's a, I think this is a really good performance. 
very tight. Jerry's singing is great. Donna's singing with him is really good. Really powerful drumming, some splashy cymbals that add a lot, I think, and sound really, really nice. And Bob's playing is so clear. It's like just crystal clear in your right ear and just sounds great. And then Keith's playing in the last minute, come from like four minutes on is also great. So I think this is like a a really, really good uh, brown-eyed women. I was a little lower on it than you and not that it's bad, but kind of similar to your analysis of Bertha from the night before, like so pristine and like a stock, excellent version that there was almost nothing to talk about. Um, yeah, I don't completely disagree with that. Either. But the, the intro was fun. Like you noted. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I don't disagree. I just think that even within the stock version, there's just, they're just playing it so well that it's like, yeah, enjoyable. Um, the next one for me is like the definition of a stock version. It's El Paso, <laughs> just solid, if unspectacular, it's, there's not really anything like unique happening there. It's well played. Bob's, you know, he's singing it well, but I didn't really have much else to say about it. Yeah. The crowd loved it. Like this was, I think the biggest crowd cheer um since the casey jones return like the crowd was really really into it yeah this could be the studio version for all i know like that there's not one note that's flubbed or out of place and it just sounds so clean yeah it does the next song is dupree's diamond blues I am just not a Dupree head. This song is not my favorite at all. <laughs> Same. I'm really not about this song. This is the first time they played this in a while, kind of like Casey Jones. Yeah, 600 so shows between the last a, time they played it. That's exciting. Yeah. The last 45 seconds of this song are spectacular. Um, I have a I'm, big problem I'm with, with you. this song, though. Oh, let's hear it. With this version of this song. Oh, oh okay. This is the first version I've ever heard of this song with Donna. Like every version of this song I've ever heard is from either the sixties or the eighties. I'm pretty sure. Um, and like you said, they, they put it aside from 1969 until this show, there was a 600 show gap <laughs> between the two. And it is so bizarre for me to hear Donna harmonizing um, on this yeah. song, especially the ooze. Um, like during the chorus, it's like with Bob, with Bobby in the background. Um, it is like disconcerting to me. <laughs> and you know, I'm a Donna head. I love Donna, but like just when you're not expecting it, and it's a song that to me, it I am used to either hearing like young Jerry singing it or old grizzled Jerry, <laughs> but not with Donna. And so it's like, this is the first and only version I've ever heard with her on it. And it, I already am not crazy about this song. And then that I was like, all right, I'm, I'm out on this song. <laughs> I am out on Dupree's right now. Well, I think you need to recalibrate a little and adjust to Donna versions because this is the number eight Dupree's on Hetty version. Okay. How many before it are from the seventies though? Can you see that? I can. Let's take a quick time out here. Yeah. Because I don't know. I mean, maybe people are just charmed by the fact that it's with Donna. Um, and that is kind of a rarity and it was the first time with her, or maybe she gets better at it as they did it more, but I don't know. So tell me what's going on ahead of this. So three others in the seventies ahead of it, but like you said, maybe it gets better. The three are from 
November 77, November 77, and February 78. Yeah. So maybe well, they they figured out something to appease you with those ones. Okay. I mean, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. I hope that we come across one of the 78 ones or the 78 one or one of the other 77 ones. Um, I think our next show has this song in it as well uh, from 84, right? It does. Yeah. So we're going to double dip on Dupree's Diamond Blues. One thing that is, I will give the song a shout out for a great um, and legendary Grateful Dead newsletter, Dupree's Diamond News. That's a f- like tremendous. That's really good. <laughs> such a good title. <laughs> Shout out to them for coming up with that. That's amazing. Um, I don't have to love the song to love that name. So um, anyway, two more songs left in set one. First is Let It Grow. Um, what are your, What are your thoughts on this Let It Grow? We've moved out of the Weather Report suite territory, and now they're they're just letting it grow rather than going with the whole suite. Right. I am a, I'm learning that I am a huge Let It Grow head. Wow. I love this song. Um, not necessarily this particular version, although I think that this is a quite a good let it grow. Um, this is a very salsa flavored let it grow. I, it is. I thought um, kind of starts with Jerry in the first solo at the three-ish minute mark and kind of goes for the rest of the song. Uh, the cowbell comes back a little and... They Bob just sounded pristine on this from start to finish, both vocally and in his playing. What about you? What were your thoughts on this? I I completely agree. It's interesting. The she comes from a town where they call her the woodcutter's daughter. From like that part onward, I think that um the salsa vibes are in full effect. I like this version a lot. It's also the longest song in the first set. It's almost 13 minutes long. And I think that it's warranted. They, you know, they're doing interesting stuff throughout and everyone's playing really well. The cowbell, it's back. There's more cowbell in the second set too, but it fits. It fits pretty well in this version. I don't have any other specific shout outs to give to this performance, but I just, I did think it was a a nice, a nice version. There's a sweet, intense drum roll around 9.30 that um, I think like really kind of brings in some energy. Number 15, Let It Grow on Heady version. So that's a front page, front page version. So, I mean, wow. back to back, that Dupree's Let It Grow is quite highly regarded. Okay, so 58 times uh, throughout the Dead's career, they played Let It Grow as the penultimate song of set one. And then you get all of the typical songs that you'd expect, ones that are a little bit tighter, more upbeat, um, Casey Jones, Deal, Don't Ease Me In, Might As Well, uh, coming after it to close out set one. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's actually not dissimilar from the way they closed out set one in the first show where they have, um, you know, kind of a more slower, sweeter Peggy O, and then they give you a ripper to end set one on a high note, get the energy back up um, before they head in. And that's what happens here with deal. 
Um, this was the second most common set one closer of 77 and the most common both all time and throughout the seventies when it comes to what song they're sending you into set break with, it's more likely than not deal compared to the other alternatives. And maybe also that's partially why I was like Cassidy into deal. This is going to be the end of the first set. Well, it was this night. So this is the only song that they uh, repeated between the two nights. And this was a longer version than the first night. It's almost a minute longer. And even with that, I didn't think that it was demonstrably better than the first one. Um, To be honest, I found them pretty comparable. And I even uh, paused after this and went back to disc one and listened to the first deal just to try to hear what's going on differently between the two. The first one I think is played a little like a, um, a B hair faster, but uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty similar to me. Did you have one that you liked better than the other? I liked the second one. I liked tonight's October 2nd better. I tried to compare them to, I think the drumming in October 1st was better. I think Keith was better on the second. Okay. Okay. Well, either way, a good end to uh, set one. We still do have two more songs left um, on this disc. Let's, let's just talk about one and then let's save the last one for the end. Yeah, because um, the, the last one on this disc is the encore. So we'll talk about that when we get there. But um, the the next to last song on this disc is the second set opener, Samson and Delilah. This is the most common 77 set to opener. They did. They opened 27 second sets with this song. And I can see why. I mean, it's a great energetic way to get us started in the second set. This is a nice version, seven minutes and 45 seconds. Um, Kind of to me, like a lot of the songs we've talked about, just solid but not but not special uh, I, th- I think it's a good version but not a great version and I, I don't even have any other notes on it other than that I I agree with you Phil and the drums get hot and stay hot the whole song it's this is one of my favorite dead songs I I love when they rip into this um, but yeah this is kind of just guilty of being spectacular solid but not spectacular um, the number 41, Samson and Delilah, on heady version. So, And I think that feels right. Like, it's quite, quite good. It's just not fantastic. Yeah. And there are some Samson and Delilah's where, especially if the tempo is not right, it can sound just off. And this one is, dev- no one would accuse it of that. Like, this is played at a really good tempo. Um, much like the one from the Unidome in 78, which I think is the, my favorite it, version of the song, yeah. um, where it's just like the tempo is crisp and powerful and, you know, really keeps you entertained. So that's disc three. Now we are into the the final disc, the remainder of set two. And then um, we have the encore from disc three that we'll get back to. But the rest of the second set is very compelling. Um, a lot of beloved songs, a lot of big old jams. Well, a lot of songs that are typically big old jams, I guess is what I should say. Because there are no monsters in this in this uh, second set. Uh, what you have is Scarlet, Fire, this is uh, Scarlet into Fire, and then playing drums, trucking the other one, Warfrat and Sugar Mag as the big jam suite. So we'll start. And, and the wheel. Did I miss playing, the wheel? Playing drums, the wheel. Yeah. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Playing drums, again. the wheel. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> we'll go warts and all just like the dead. <laughs> so anyways, uh, start with Scarlet Fire. 
Scarlet, right off the bat, welcome to the fill zone. He's doing, he's crushing it on this song. This is not my favorite Scarlet Begonias, and I love Scarlet, uh, but I don't think that this is a particularly great version. Although I do think that the very mellow outro that just kind of melts away into fire is like one of my all-time favorite transitions between these two songs, which yeah. does change the way that I view it. I am so intrigued by that. It's just like, it's so patient and not forceful at all it's just like they just kind of let it happen and it's just beautiful i love that uh, transition and i also think it's really cool that keith i don't know what the hell it is it's like an electric keyboard uh, or an electric organ that he's playing to bridge the gap between the two songs but go listen to the scarlet fire from cornell or from any of the spring 77 shows and he's he's playing a piano and so the electric sound that he's working with on this show is completely different and not in any way what I was expecting on a 77 Scarlet Fire. Um, and so I thought that that was just really, really cool. intro in fire on the mountain stays just as mellow as that nice transition and then when jerry gets that wah pedal working we are into full-blown indian bead string you know ripping solo uh so overall this scarlet fire i think is is quite good as a whole the scarlet part i think is a bit weaker than the fire but then the transition and the fire i think build it up to a, a higher level yeah, the fire really stays mellow until that four minute mark where Jerry really gets into it. It takes a while to get cooking, but once yeah. it does, it 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 cooks. Um, I thought the dueling solos between Bob and Jerry, the nine minute mark were really cool. Um, and then I loved the drummers like kind of took a little risk at the end with some cool beats and then they they nailed it. Um, the Scarlet, I agree with you. It could kind of be like the studio version. The fire felt a little more like they were, they were taking a little risk, not a big risk, but after that four minute mark, they really sent it. I'm surprised you didn't comment on the little, um, Finicula, Finicula. Finicula. Yeah. I was going to after. Yeah. I, I think that it's, I think it's cool. I was not expecting it because I had not listened to any of the audience versions or anything like that. And they don't call it out as a specific track on this release. It's just Scarlet into fire into, well, not into, but Scarlet into fire and then playing. But yeah, I thought that was great. And also it just reminded me of that story that I told on one of our other episodes about how the reason that they started doing that is because while they were getting the stage set up at Cornell, they were asking the students that were putting on the show what they should play. And one of them was like, you should play Finiculi Finicula. And they were like, what? (laughs) That thing? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then they did. (laughs) And so uh, I think that that's pretty cool that like just someone mentioned that and then they took it and they did it a number of times over the years. Um, Definitely a nice little surprise. Um, And then kind of a cool, like that's your last, your last kind of, little thing before we get into the the big jam suite that comes after this starting with playing yeah real quick on scarlet fire 
for a song that they played so often and is so beloved by Deadheads, uh, this is number 31 ranked. So that's saying something. And I think, I think that speaks to how, how excellent the fire heats up to by the end. I agree. And again, I think the transition too, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a special transition between those two songs. So after Scarlet Fire, we get a, a pretty good plane in the band. It gets off to an uneven start, um, I think, but then it gets surprisingly deep and kind of thorny for the runtime being what it is. Yeah. Uh, being short. Yeah. It, we go from very like safe to very spacey seemingly in a couple of seconds. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was notable. Um, the drumming is frantic. It's not as solid as it had been the rest of the show. Um, this felt like a very average plan to me, like nothing special. Yeah. My note was not my favorite, but it's good. It's not great, but it's good. Yeah. I think that, I mean, for a nine minute plan though, like it's not, it's not like a, like the 10 minute plans they were busting out in Europe 72 where it's like, Whoa, what the hell did they just do in 10 minutes? Like how did <laughs> yeah. that just happen? Um, but I do think that there's some really interesting parts of it. It's just, um, yeah, not nothing, nothing crazy going on here. Um, from here into drums, this is like, they're kind of like what you were saying about, um, the uh music never stopped being like a three-part experience this is kind of that too the beginning is really interesting they've got all these chimes and cowbells and like percussion for the most part and then you get into that kind of more typical like driving tom focused drums that maybe we're more used to and then at the end we start to transition out um i mean good good drums i'm here for it yeah um (laughs) Yeah, it's almost spacey and then it comes out into the wheel, but no, nothing to add. Yeah, and I honestly I don't have much to add on the wheel. That's probably why I missed it when we were going over the set list. I just <laughs> it's not my favorite version. I think it's pretty uneven to be honest, and I I don't think that it's the most spirited performance they've ever had of the wheel. So, yeah, yeah. I think that maybe If I had to pick a low point of this October 2nd show, I think that it would be right here at the wheel. I, I think I agree. Um but from the wheel, they go into trucking, which I do think is a nice, a nice version. Um, no vocal flubs from Bob, as you'd expect, like we're, like we've been saying, like it's just a smooth 77 version. Um, it yeah. is, it is a longer one though. It's almost 11 minutes long. Um, so they, they cook a little bit with trucking and they find some interesting spaces to go into with it. So I, I was here for it. I thought it was good. Yeah. I thought it was good too. I thought it started out pretty just average and solid it built up into a roaring second half at like the seven minute mark the solo really started to get pumping the drums started going crazy bob was right there helping out jerry um and you know, yeah i i enjoyed the second half of this song it would have been interesting if so the next song after this is a five minute and 30 second long the other one it would have been really interesting if they would have just played 15 minutes of trucking you know obviously yeah. that's total backseat quarterbacking and the mood just didn't strike them to do that i'm i'm in no position to argue with that but it would have been cool like five minutes and 30 seconds for the other one is no time at all there's no, no space to 
get, it felt like they were just scratching the surface with it. Um, and it, it is good for, for as tight a version as it is, it's, it's a quite good, the other one, but it just, it really felt like they were just starting to scratch the surface. And then they transitioned out into Wharf Rat. I was like, what was this weird little interlude? Um, <laughs> so it's consistent yeah. with a lot of songs from this night and the night before. It just seems like they maybe ran out of steam a little bit and were like, oh, let's just cut it. It's going to Wharf Rat. I, I would have been compelled to hear more of Trucking. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And I mean, part of the latter half of Trucking that I enjoyed was the transition to the other one. But I agree with you. They could have, you know, messed around a little with the other one theme, but then gone back into Trucking. Trucking. Yeah. That would have been wild. That would have been cool. But yeah. Yeah. The other, it's just like you said, they don't, they don't really do anything with it when they're there. They do it. They started out a little hot and then they are kind of like, all right, and here's Warfrat. Maybe they just wanted to give Mickey one more chance to bang out that cowbell. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, whatever the reason, um, it does lead into a, a really nice, heartfelt sounding Warfrat. Uh, for me, I mean, this is about as emotional a performance as you can expect. I mean, from a really emotional song. Um, the soloing around the eight minute mark of this song is, I thought, surprisingly upbeat. It's like we're getting into the part of the song that has a more optimistic end, um, but mm-hmm. they precede that with some very optimistic sounding playing. And then the at 920, the beginning of the return for the final verse is truly triumphant. I thought you talked about Keith with the Scarlet Fire transition. I thought this song was Keith's shining moment of set two. Wow. I actually think that um his shining moment of set two is the next song. Mm. So interesting. Anything else on Warfrat before we get there though? No. Number 148 version on heady version. Which wow. Felt, felt a little low. Uh, I wasn't as high on this. I love this song. I wasn't as high on this version as you were, but oh I I mean, yeah. I think I, it deserved a little more love than that. Yeah, I love this song too. I would have put it at least in the top 100 though i mean i'm not saying it's the best but i think it's good um next song a you know classic set to closer the classic set to closer their most common set to closer uh 280 times they closed the second set with this song sugar magnolia um it's it's a really nice start to this song through the end of verse one the playing is just really good and keith's playing is like ornate what he's doing is so like just just great. Ornate is the only word I can think of. It's like delicate and just nice sounding. Uh it's he's on that cool echo effect, like a slight echo too, which I, I enjoyed. Yeah. I think he's really working with that the right side, the higher side, um, higher register of his keys throughout the song, and it sounds really good. And Mickey just fucking loves this cowbell, man. He <laughs> cannot get enough of it. I yeah. mean he just, he's, this is the Mickey cowbell era. That's where we are in 1977. <laughs> I'm not mad at it, but I mean, you know, do your thing, Mickey, whatever. If you want more cowbell. <laughs> yeah. And he does. He does. I, I liked the kind of slower build in the coda. Yes. Like sometimes that's, they, that's my last note here. Same exact thing. Like they, you know, they stop and then they do the sunshine daydream and then they explode back at you. But this one, they kind of teased it up and built it out a little more. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that and Me I enjoyed too. it all the way up to the peak of the wailing and the high energy cowbell. The 
it, they're so patient. They like bring it down and then like you're saying, they bring it back up into into Sunshine Daydream. I love Donna during the coda. She's crushing it. Yeah. So shout out to Donna in uh, the Sunshine Daydream part of this song. This is a good trigger mag. Is this on Heady Version? Where, where does this play into things? It is number 159. Wow. People hate the cowbell. (laughs) 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 All right. So then the next song and the last song, which we skipped from disc three is a little five minute long Johnny be good. That was the encore. No encore the first night. um, At least not one that's on this release. Yeah. Which is weird. I mean, the around and around is very, very energetic from that first night, but interesting that they didn't even, I mean, maybe they knew when we're coming back tomorrow. We'll, give him something then yeah to dance I to know. i could yeah. see that but it, it's a fine johnny be good no notes for me it's yeah it's crazy energy from the drummers a good high energy closer but nothing nothing more to add nothing to nothing particularly special a song that they played a billion times all right dave well that's it dave's picks 45 Nice release. Great job by everyone involved. Um, I'm happy to have this in my collection. The artwork's great. The production is really nice. Some really good highlight moments. The number one Casey Jones of all time, which is pretty cool. It is cool. And I know that's the song you're taking with you on your imaginary playlist. You want to do one from each show or just one overall? Yeah, you can pick first for show one since I picked first for show two. Well, I'm also taking the Casey Jones from night two, and then oh, nice, we're on the I same page. That's the that's a first for us. We haven't we haven't done that since uh, Jim and Maryland brought us together, um, <laughs> way way back on our third or fourth episode. Something. Which like song that. did we both take from that? From that, we both took um, we both took the eleven from October twelfth, nineteen sixty eight, which oh, is the okay. regarded as the best eleven of all time, um, and then from. October 1st, I'm going to take, you know, shocker, the music never stopped. Yeah, I would take that too, but I know that you have an aversion to like that, <laughs> to, to the full copying. So I'm going to take Passenger. I think this is a really good hey. Passenger. I'm a big fan of it. I listened to it a bunch of times. Um, and I would think about They Love Each Other. That was another one that would factor in for me. But because we don't have the first four minutes and 20 seconds of Betty board, high quality sound. I feel like I shouldn't do that. And instead I should take one that I don't think I've taken a passenger before, and I'm not sure how many times I'll have the opportunity to again. So let's get a passenger on the list. I'm going to go play it for Jane. See how she reacts. She's not going to like it. (laughs) As we've talked about, my wife is not a Donna head um, in any, by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think even if you're not a huge Donna lover, 77 Donna is like peak Donna. Yeah. She sounds I mean, really good. She's so pristine the whole show. Shout out to Donna. Yeah. Sh- another shout out to Donna. All right. So we both got Casey Jones from night two. You've got the music never stopped, which is an, a great one from night one. And then I've got um, passenger. What would have been some runners up for you? What are some other songs that you were tempted by? On night one, kind of the dancing in the street because of how weird the cowbell is. Maybe about- Tennessee Jed. I'm yeah. going to be honest with you. On on night two, nothing else really, nothing caught my eye so much that it competed with that Casey Jones. I would have thought about Jack Straw a little bit. I like the intro to Brown Eyed Women so much that I, if I wasn't so high on Casey Jones, I would have thought about that. 
And then just because of the transition and the ending of Fire on the Mountain, I would have thought about that one as well. But I would want like the last 10 seconds of Scarlet at least too. Um, okay, so what do you have any closing thoughts on this release before we close it up and put it onto our our bookshelves? Dave Lemieux, come on the show. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Dave, we love your work. Um, and we have one Dave L on this show. We've got room for another, so by all means, come join us. And you, the fans, thank you again so much for spending some of your time with us. I hope that if you got this CD, you enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, it'll be interesting to take a look back at the end of the year and see how this plays in, how this factors into our releases. Well, remember last year, we were kind of singing the same tune on Dave's Picks 41, and I think it ended up at the top of our list yeah, last year. So I know. It, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think um, that that's a more consistent release than this one, though. If I like of the 77 releases that I have, that one and this one I think are the only two. No, well, I have another like spring 77 box that has the run from New Haven, Boston, Cornell, and Buffalo. So, I mean, that's kind of the top because those last two shows, especially, are so, so good. But, um, the I do think that that one had a higher floor than this one. And a higher ceiling in a weird way. <laughs> what do you, I mean, do you disagree? I don't disagree. No. Yeah. Um, this, and that we've kind of been beating the same drum, but this is not bad by any means. We are nitpicking, complaining at near perfection. God, 100%. If this was, if, if there had not been like a million shows from 77 that had been released and were available streaming everywhere, and this was like the first taste of 77 that we had ever gotten, it would burn off both our ears. Be like, yeah. wait, what? <laughs> this is possible? This is crazy. Everything is played so well. There's not a missed note anywhere. This is amazing. There's one 10 second part that we said was sneakery and the rest of it is great. And Mickey just broken his arm like two months before. Like that's insane. Um, so, I mean, yeah. yeah, they were just so hot in 77 that it's, you know, comparison is the thief of joy and comparing it to some of the great music that we got in 77 just makes it, I think a little bit hard. Um, but yeah, I am really happy to have this release. Great job by everyone involved and great job by you, Dave. So, um, we will see you guys in a couple weeks with a show from 84 that we both, um, enjoy quite a bit. Um, until then be well, everyone stay safe and we bid you good night.